Good morning, everybody. I am Seth. I'm one of the teaching pastors, and I get to uh, unfold our last text in the chapter of Romans 8 uh, today. And it's, it's, a, it's a real treasure, a real treat to get to do so. Romans 8 begins with Paul saying, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we are not sentenced to death. Good news. That we're not like a building that's worthless and can't be occupied that needs to be torn down. That we are occupiable, fit for use saved for connection, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is working in our lives to help us conquer sin and death and bear witness to new creation. And the way this chapter ends is it goes from this promise of no condemnation, this promise of no separation, that nothing's going to get in between you and your big brother, Jesus. And when I think about this text, I, and I think about even myself, there's this nervousness that remains. I hear about and I believe that Christ conquered the grave. I hear about and I believe that the Holy Spirit's at work in my life. But there's still this degree of uncertainty I feel about the future, about my future. But how strong is my faith? What if I'm tempted in ways unimaginable? What if something terrible happens to my children or to my family? Or what if, so, like, what if stuff goes, will my faith still be strong? Like, and there's like this a, a degree of like, I trust Jesus, but also I haven't had to trust him through all these wins. And, like, and so there's a, a nervousness there. It makes me think about uh, this time when I was 19. I was an intern at the church and I was fired up about being an intern at the church. And I was serving in the student ministries and I got wind that there was this small group leader in his mid to late 40s who was teaching heresy in his small group. He was teaching that the Holy Spirit was not a person. Now at this point in my life, I had virtually read exclusively Harry Potter. So I was not ready to fight this fight. I was not ready to have this battle. I remember going to the pastor and saying, he's teaching heresy. And the pastor had something more important to do than Teach sound doctrine to the high school students. I don't know what he's doing. But anyway, so I was like, fine, I'll have this meeting by myself. I'm going to go and I'm going to argue with this guy in his mid to late 40s who's read tons of books despite being 19. And I'm second time around the curve on the, the sorcerer's stone. You know, I don't know about any of this stuff, you know. So I'm like reading the Bible, trying to look up for texts about the Holy Spirit. And then I emailed at the time, there's this guy working part-time at our church named Dr. Daryl Delhuse, uh, who's the president of Phoenix Seminary. And I said, hey, will you go to this meeting with me? to argue about the Trinity with this guy. And I sent it to him, but I was feeling nervous, expecting no reply, but I was like, you know, got to swing at some pitches. And then, so anyway, uh, Daryl emailed me back, said, sure. And I was like, thank goodness. And my anxiety about the meeting went from here to about through the ground. You know, I was thinking about like, I got to do this hard thing, have this hard meeting, fight, have this hard conversation. And all of a sudden, once I heard Daryl was coming, I was just like, who is going to stand a chance. You know, like this guy's going down. Uh, we're going to win. If uh, Daryl is for us, who can be against us? You know, uh, it was what I was thinking. And so we had this meeting. And anyway, the guy was removed from leadership and he, and he uh, left the church because we were mean and too conservative or whatever. You know, I was thinking like, that's not too conservative. That's just basic being biblical. So he, he guy left. I counted a victory. I was happy. But that, that's kind of how I feel about reading this text. Like now the spirits in my life I have like actually good goals. There are more uh, good intentions. There's this desire to walk in the spirit, but like, do I still have to fight my own battles? Do I still got to do my own, like what? And here's what it says right here is, um, Jesus Christ died and more than that who was raised and is right now at the right hand of the God of the Father is 
still interceding for us. That it's not like Jesus calls a place, sends you the spirit, and you're supposed to like somehow kind of figure it out. Like he's always with us. He's always going to the meeting with us. He's fighting the temptation with us. He's navigating the suffering with us. He's, he's, he's advocating to the Father on our behalf that he's still with us all the time. And so that creates a spirit of victory. If you think about like defeat and the, the hung shoulders, the sense of shame, the regret, the self-loathing, the I, I haven't sinned in three days because I haven't been tempted in three days, but next time I'm tempted, guess what's going to happen? You know, like, and, and this kind of like sense of the trial's going to come, I'm probably going to lose. In contrast, when God is for you, who can be against you? He's coming to fight these battles with us, that it ought to create a, a disposition of expectant victory over temptation and the temptations and trials that come with suffering. And so we all probably appropriately have a pretty low view of the strength of our faith. But it is not the strength of our faith that makes us able to walk in faith. It is the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to actually walk in that spirit of victory. And so I'm going to look at this text and we're going to see about what it means and how like the, the, the security and the confidence we ought to have in the fact that the Spirit is around us and through us and, and energizing us and empowering us. We're going to see how uh, he's conforming us, how he's conquering us, and how he's connecting us. Those are the three things we're going to see in here that we have work to do to be conformed, um, to conquer and to connect him to ultimately to Christ. Let me pray and we'll talk through this. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll help us uh, be able uh, to sense your vision you have for our lives and that we would yield our other visions. God, I pray that as we deal with our insecurity around our faith and even our ability to be led by the Spirit, that even the insecurity of being led by the Spirit we'd see as something the Holy Spirit is here to remedy. In your name we pray, amen. All right, chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that for those who love God, so it's not all people, it is for those who love God, those who want to follow him, who cherish him, who desire to be close to him, for those who love God, all things, that's all without exception, not all types of things, all without exception, uh, these things work together for good. Now, if you've experienced terrible, like, that verse sounds really good on the surface until like you have something difficult you're going through. And you're going like, all things work together for good? Uh, not in my experience. You mean this? You mean this? You mean, like, if you sit and are quiet for about 12 seconds, you'd come up with like three or four examples of like, how am I supposed to believe that this works together for good? How am I supposed to believe that God is doing this? For, how to, like, so here's, here's a couple things about this text. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What Paul is not saying here is that all things are good. This isn't kind of Bob Marley, kumbaya, everything's good, man. That's not what he's getting at. He's highlighting and demonstrating the fact that there is real evil, there's real distress, there's real suffering, there's real terrible going on in the world, and he's not trying to lower the bar or minimize the weight of that pain. He's not saying evil's not real, it's just an illusion, all things are good. He's not saying that. The Bible is full of places where real evil is lamented and wrestled with and felt and experienced and people honestly pray and say, God, why? What is going on here? But what we're saying is that God is working all of these things together for good. Not all things are good, but things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The question we have to ask here is, what is good? 
because everybody has an assumed definition of what the good life is. This is the question of ethics. What is the good life? What is a meaningful life? What is a full life? What does it mean to live a fully flourishing human life? And every worldview, every culture, every pocket has a definition of what would count as a good life. Oftentimes it's financial, oftentimes it's sexual, oftentimes it's communal, oftentimes it has to do with power, our ability to act on it or express it or do what we want to be not controlled or to control others or to um, be thought of in a certain way by the community. Or, but most basically, the, the assumed definition of a good life in Western culture, especially American culture, is the good life is the painless life. And we have to understand here as Americans is that that is a cultural, philosophical answer to the question, what is a good life? If you ask Eastern people, if you ask people from past civilizations, if you ask people from different cultures, they would give you a different answer. Some consider suffering as a gift because it loosens the bonds to the material world. Some consider uh, the good life as the life where you're most misunderstood because you're no longer tempted to like find your identity in people. And so we have to understand that like our assumed definition of good as being painless or comfort is a huge problem. I think part of the reason we have such an, uh, an addiction dynamic, all various forms of it in our current culture, like all the different types of addictions, whether it's spending or watching or uh, injecting or uh, imbibing. We're, we're such an addicted culture because we're such a pain-averse culture. We, can, we don't know how to make sense of pain, and so we think good life is the painless life, and so we try to medicate our pain as fast as possible so everyone is like one notch away from being addicted to a whole bunch of stuff. And so if we think that the good life is the painless life, but we, and there's whole streams even within secular culture that's saying, like, that's not true. All the good things you want in life are on the far side of hard, Emotional connections on the far side of vulnerability. Physical fitness is on the far side of exercise and saying no to impulse. Uh, meaningful connection is on the far side of initiative and risk of rejection. Uh, financial dependence is on the far side of, of, uh, of starting or generating value and restraining spending. All those things are painful. And so there's a degree in which we, when we have a vision for our pain, our pain becomes purposeful and we're okay with it. Right? Like if you pay a personal trainer and they only make you feel comfortable the whole time, you're going, well, if I wanted to feel comfortable, I could have been my own personal trainer. Oh, starting to hurt, I'm done. <laughs> but we see this productive pain. And so what Paul is getting at here is like, let me help you define good the way that God defines good. Because he's gonna take our comfort-seeking, painless vision for life, and he's gonna say, that's actually not the definition of good you should have. That theologian Peter Kreese said that the world is this veil of soul making. That we are blocks of marble who are being subject to the chisel of the artist. Who violently is shaping us into the beautiful structures he would have us to be. This is not painless and it is not optional. And Paul is echoing that when he says this right here. He says, um, the good for those who are called according to his purpose. That to some degree the good correlates with his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That the good life in this life has to do with being progressively conformed to the image of his son. That any definition of a well-lived life, of a meaningful life, 
of a purposeful life that is not somehow centered on or paying the most attention to the fact that God is conforming us into Christ-likeness is a non-Christian view of the good life. And the reason I think that suffering is doubly difficult for us There's the initial suffering, which is just the pain and grief and loss itself, but then it becomes doubly difficult for us is because we also experience suffering as an attack on our attempt at having a good life. My vision and purpose for my life was this, God's taken that away, and now I cannot have a good life. Now I cannot have a meaningful life. Now I cannot engage life the way I want it. And Paul is saying, these things are difficult, they are bad, they are suffering, they are terrible, But God is working these things together so that you would become more like Jesus. The spirit of Christ, connection to him, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I have not met someone with a warmth of spirit, of hospitality, of curiosity, of generosity, of softness who has not suffered greatly. Because suffering tends to uh, strip away our assumptions of, of life, our sense of entitlement, our sense of superiority, our sense of simple cause and effect. Well, if you were this, then it would just be, and all of a sudden, those things are taken from us, and there's a humility and an openness and a lack of assumption that forces us to engage with people in a different way. I had a professor in college, or not in college, an ASU professor would never say this, a professor at Phoenix Seminary named Dr. Grudem, and he said, I have never met a mature Christian who has not seriously suffered to the point of emotional spiritual crisis older than the age of 50. So he's getting at us. Every single Christian he knew older than 50 has had to go through some type of substantial suffering crisis not just the pain itself but the emotional spiritual angst that the pain created and I heard that as someone who had not done that yet and was like that sounds stupid (laughs) what are you talking about God's gonna spare me not yet Dr. Grudem wait till I'm 50 but we we have this sense of like what is a good life so God is, t- that there's this conforming. And so we have to understand here that our vision of a good life is always a mix of conforming ourselves to some mashup of other people's lives. Our gut definition of the good life is that person's marriage, that person's parenting, that person's finances, that person's church engagement, that person's house. And we kind of go, I'm gonna try to conform to all this because that would be the good life. And here he is saying, I'm wiping that away. You have to understand here that I'm conforming you to the image of my son. That is the good life. We are in this veil of soul making that the Lord, the author, has his chisel out and he's working on us. This is one of the reasons why I think it's very important for young people to have meaningful relationships with folks who are much older than them. Is because young people cannot be wise. And by that what I mean is this is wisdom is hindsight well reflected on in the spirit of Christ that gives perspective and wisdom. And so if that's what wisdom is, then young people cannot have that because they don't have much hindsight yet. 
Whereas you talk with folks who have been through a couple generations or iterations of suffering, making no sense, 12 years later, oh, now I see what God was doing. Prayers unanswered 15 years later, now I see why God wasn't answering it like that. With this ability, like I talked to this guy maybe like a year and a half ago who was a contractor and this was like right at like the peak of like we're in a recession and he's like, I'm talking to these young people at my job and they're all freaking out about the recession. I was like, I've been through five of these. Cool your jets. Recessions end, we'll be fine. Yeah, we'll fire some people. It'll be bad, blah, blah, blah. We'll get through. Five recessions I've been through. Like there's this, that's, that's called wisdom. That's perspective that leads to hindsight. And, and so I know that, a, a, so here's another confession. Is, uh, so I was on my sabbatical. I was gonna uh, reread the Harry Potter books. So uh, if you have a huge problem with that, you can email me. My email is gonna be turned off for three months though. So uh, I read them in high school and now I'm rereading them. But I started early. I already read, reread the whole first book. And there's like this, uh, if you don't know this yet, so there's this guy named Snape. You think he's bad. And the, they try to make it real hard to make you think he's bad. But then he ends up being not the bad guy. And you kind of feel bad because you're like, I judged this guy the whole book and he's not the bad guy. And it works the first time. But the second time you read the book, you're like, I know what J.K. Rowling's doing. She's trying to make me hate Snape. But it's not going to work because I know he's not the bad guy. You know, and so... The re-experiencing of the story after you've seen the whole thing play out uh, changes the way you experience the story. And I want all of us to understand this, that when we reach the new heavens and the new earth and we sit with the author of world history and we, with him, re-narrate our life story, all of the things that make no sense to us now, when we sit with the author and hear him retell the story, we'll go, oh, I see what you're doing. Oh, I see that makes sense. And we'll be able to actually agree with him that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right now, we can confess that as an aspirational belief, but so often our suffering makes us go like, is he working all things together for good? But like, and so I, I want all of it, I just want you to know that I promise you that when you sit with God in the new creation, you will be able to re-narrate your life just like you were rereading Harry Potter and you won't be mad at Snape anymore. The villains may not be the villains. The people you thought were good guys may not be the good guys. The, the pain that was senseless will become sensible. And all of what God was doing, you'll be able to see his wisdom. That this is a a faith we exercise until we actually get to sit with the author and he helps us re-narrate our stories. And that gap between our experience and our understanding is part of where faith lies. But God is undoing our definitions of the good and giving us a new definition of good, which is that right now that we become like Jesus. Not that we accumulate as much wealth as possible. Not that we build our network as wide as possible. Not that we manage our reputations as meaningfully as possible. Not that we and the people around us never have difficulty, but that God is conforming us. That is a really aggressive word. And he's working on that. Next section we hear is this, this verse 31, chapter 8, verse 31. And this is really his summary statement, right? So what do we say to these things? 
that those, verse 30, that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul is going no condemnation all the way to glorification, that God is looking at our life from above the line as the author, seeing our entire life unfold while we experience it bit by bit. And Jesus is seeing us in our glorified state, in our predestined state, in our justified state, that our, the story of our life is not a mystery to him, that God is outside of time seeing our entire life play out, and there's no condemnation, that there'll be no surprises to God. And Paul says, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This rhetorical question is inferring only someone totally stupid would try to be on the other side of God in a war. Only someone absolutely foolish, only someone without any perspective would say, I'm going to stand against God and his people. He says, who, he who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Meaning God the Father has paid so much. The most precious thing he paid was that his son would die in our place. And we think that he wouldn't pay other things that are less expensive to continue in his work of conforming us, of saving us, of loving us, of engaging with us. It's like going to a really nice restaurant, ordering a $300 bottle of wine, two $200 steaks, and then trying to save money on dessert. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you already spent a thousand bucks, pay 15 bucks for the customer. Like, this, you, this is what he's getting at. It's like, he already bought the steaks and the wine, and you're going to try to, I don't know if he, he's maybe too busy to listen to my prayers. Give me a break. He's already spent all this. He's okay with spending more. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Meaning, I don't care who's going to raise charges. The plaintiff is going to come to us as a defendant. He's going to get a lawyer. And kind of like if you, like imagine for a moment, hopefully you have to imagine that you were in the mafia and you were in the business of, of paying off judges. Like you're like, I got the judge in my pocket. It doesn't matter how good the other lawyer is when you've already bought off the judge. He's going, okay, someone's gonna bring a charge against God's elect. Well, God's the judge. So he's the one who bought you. So he's not surprised. So the best lawyer, the best charges, guess what? God's the judge. Don't worry about that. Who's gonna condemn? Who's gonna defeat you, declare you unfit? Christ Jesus has already died, meaning that the condemnation is already fulfilled in Christ. More than that, he was raised, who right now is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. We got the best lawyer in the game, the intercessor, the advocate, Jesus. We got the lawyer, we got the judge, you're fine. Don't be worried about some future courtroom where you're gonna find out there are charges you didn't know about. He goes, what's gonna separate us from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's physical pain, or distress, that's emotional pain, or persecution, that's social pain, or famine, that's hunger pains, or nakedness, that's financial pain, or danger, that's pain that comes from anticipating future pain, or sword, that's political pain. All these types of pains. Is any of this gonna get in the way of God's purpose for your life. Verse 36, he says, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We regard as sheep to be slaughtered. See, Paul is speaking to the church in Rome, reminding them of what God's people went through in the exile. Saying, God spoke to the people in Israel, in, in, Israel in the exile, and said, look, I got them through the exile. Now Paul is saying, look, church in Rome, I'll get you through this Roman oppression. 
And now the Spirit is saying to us at Redemption Gateway, no matter how bad it gets, multiple iterations of oppression and exile, God has brought his people faithfully through that. Just so you know, no global, historical, socio-political, financial situation is going to inhibit you at all in terms of God's fulfillment of his purpose in you. Verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How do you be more than a conqueror? <laughs> like what does a conqueror do? They conquer. They destroy. They leave nothing behind. He says, we're even more than that. Total victory. No survivors. That for the enemies of God, this is not good news. But for God's people, this is very good news. We are more than conquerors. That word more than conquerors or conquerors, uh, if I was going to try to pronounce it, as badly as possible, it would be hyper Nikes. Nike means victory. Hyper means like super or extreme. Hyper victory. Hyper, hyper Nike. More than conquerors. It makes me think about that movie that I watched and was so jealous of the character in that movie called Like Mike. Anybody see Little Bow Wow back in the day? This is when he was Little Bow Wow still. Now he's just Bow Wow, but he was Little Bow Wow, the little child rapper. But he gets these pair of shoes. They're Nikes. And there's a, they're magic. And when you put those shoes on, you play like Michael Jordan. And the movie is all about this like 11-year-old who's dunking on NBA players and shooting and winning championships. And he's like Mike. He puts on the hyper Nikes and he's got the power of Michael Jordan to defeat uh, the other basketball player. And Paul's... Paul hasn't seen like Mike, I don't think, but he's, he's getting at, there's this power outside of you is enabling you to be more than conquerors. To be able to absolutely overthrow the opposition. You do not have to be worried about your future faith or the future temptation or the future suffering or how resilient you'll actually prove to be because I'm telling you, he's saying, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. I remember in high school kind of having this like weird confusion because I would have pastors on one hand tell me, you are secure in Christ. God has saved you. He's chosen you. You won't depart from his hand. And in the same breath, it's like, but be careful you don't lose your faith in college. It's like, which is it? (laughs) Is it losing my faith in college or is it God has me at hand and they can't take me out of it? And the main message I want to give to you is it's way more accurate to say you are more than conquerors. We shouldn't be nervous about possibly losing our faith in the future. We shouldn't be nervous about suffering causing us to question God's goodness. We shouldn't be nervous about future temptation, giving into it and making shipwreck. We should be mostly aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit is moving in our life in power and we are more than conquerors. We got hyper Nikes on. Better than Michael Jordan, we have Jesus Christ moving in us, around us, and through us. And the last thing we get here is that we are connected. From no condemnation to certain connection, we have, I am sure, I am convinced, uh, I am absolutely certain that neither death nor life, so not our death, not someone else's death, neither death nor life, not the grave, nor angels, nor rulers, no spiritual powers, nor things present, nor things to come, not now, not in the future, nor powers, political powers, nor height, nor depth, nor space, nor anything else in all creation. He's getting at, if I've not been exhaustive, I want to be very clear. All things I've said and all things I've not said, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This idea of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I go back to in verse 29 where it talks about Christ being the firstborn among many brothers. That we have this big brother in Jesus. Now big brother could mean bad things. Like if I said big brother's watching, you're like, ah, they got us, you know, or like they're, they're, they're monitoring, like some internet company's monitoring you. But if I said like big brother, like, like it's not supervision, it's, uh, it's assistance and intervention. It's not just Jesus keeping, ta- like you might have had a big brother who like just kept tabs on you and tattled. Uh, that's not what Paul's getting at. Not Jesus keeping tabs on you and tattling. This is Jesus, the big brother, the, the assister, the intervener, the supporter, the advocate, not the big brother, the, the guilter, shamer, uh, manipulator. So I, when I think about my identity as a person, like my first thing was that I was a son. Right? That was my, I was the firstborn. I was a son. That's the first kind of relational identity. I have. The second part of my identity was big brother, right? I had, I have three younger siblings. So I'm the big brother of three younger siblings. And when I think about Jesus as being my older brother, there's a piece of me that goes like, what would it be like to have an older sibling? A model, someone who goes before you, someone who like chills your parents out a little bit, you know, whatever it is. I don't know, like, what would it be like? Because I've never had, I've never had a big, but here Christ is my big brother. And so like I have something that I don't have. And it makes me think about, this is, I'm going to tell you a story. And I can't tell you for sure if I'm confessing sin or just letting you know about something that happened. All right. So <laughs> keep that in mind as I tell the story. So I'm about 19 years old. I'm my sister, two steps down. Uh, real bad pain, escalating hospital, needs emergency surgery, six-inch cyst on her uh, left ovary. Uh, my dad is out of town or something like that. And so I'm with my mom and my sister at the hospital. Uh, and the nurse comes out, says, here's the family waiting room right here. This is a simple surgery. It should not take long. It'll be 60 to 90 minutes max. I'll come back and find you right here. We'll bring you to her when the surgery's done. So we're sitting there. Okay. So we're sitting there. We go 60 minutes, 90 minutes. Uh, I start to kind of get sweaty in the palms, you know, sitting around waiting. What's taking so long? Uh, now it's been two hours. I can't sit there anymore. So I'm just going, hey, mom, my phone's on. Call me if they show up. So then I'm just kind of pacing around and I just start walking in, around the hospital. Uh, which there's not a lot of security there, you'd be surprised. But I'm just walking around <laughs> the hospital, kind of like prayer walking, but that'd be too generous. I was just walking around anxious. You know, that's what I was doing. And so then eventually I'm walking and I hear this like screaming coming out of one of these rooms. I'm like, what's going on here? So it's, now we're about three hours. They said it'd be hour, 90 minutes, about three hours. I'm nervous, haven't heard of anything. We're trying to ask someone. They're not saying anything, so I'm walking around. Then I hear this screaming coming out of my room and I'm just like walking down the and I look in the room and there's my sister in a bed by herself, screaming. And she's saying, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And I say, Samantha. And she turns me and looks and she starts crying and she's cry screaming saying, they said you left me, they said you left me, they said, you. and so she's on anesthesia, coming out of anesthesia, all kind of, so she's in like severe pain and is saying, I thought you left me. And, is, and I'm going, and so I poke my head out and I, you know, nurse, and the nurse who had told me to go stay, sit somewhere and 
comes walking out. And I was like, what are you doing? She's in like severe pain. And why didn't you come get us? And she says, I did come get you. You weren't there. And then I go like, the, the way that psychologists talk about it is you, you flip your lid or you go into your lizard brain, right? So I, it, everything goes white for about 15 minutes, pure rage. I'm screaming and yelling at the nurse, calling her a liar, saying, why didn't you get her pain medication? And the nurse says, she didn't ask for them. And I said, does screaming it hurts count as asking? She's like, well, I don't know. And so I'm going like, what kind of, so if you're a nurse, I'm sorry, but uh, basic, like, come find me. So, so then I'm calling her. Then her supervisor comes. I'm saying she's a liar. Other nurses are coming. They're saying pain pills. And so then I'm like following them around, yelling into the whole thing. Now there's like 15 people there. Um, I'm following them till they get the pain pills, following them back till they give her the pain pills, yelling at everybody. Absolutely. Finally, they get the pain medication in her. Um, I kind of, my mom is there now. I don't know how she got there. Maybe she heard me. I think she said she heard me from across the hospital wing. She says, go outside, take a walk. I go outside, take a walk. Uh, and I'm like, you know, sweating through my clothes. My sister has nightmares for weeks about being left and abandoned. Uh, and I'm just beyond furious. I come back, you know, 45 minutes later after I've caught my breath. And uh, I walk into the room and everyone's all happy. There's nurses there. And they're like, eh, different. They moved us to a different hospital wing because we made a scene. We disrupted the entire floor. And by we, I mean I did. I... We, so they transferred us to the cardiac wing because people were calm up there, I guess. And so the nurses, and so I walk in and like, oh, who's this? Another visitor. And like, oh, it's my big brother. And the nurses go like, oh, like they've, they've heard about the big brother, you know. And sir, and they start calling me sir, you know. And they're, I'm 19, like, oh, yes, sir. Yeah. And so they give me a piece of paper outlining the course of treatment and here's all the stuff and this pill at this time, this pill at this time and, and we are here for you and don't you and then the, the director or president of the hospital calls my phone and is apologizing for how and then the like lawyer, like please don't sue and so it's like I'm for days getting phone calls from the hospital about this, this stuff and I don't know how sinful I was I assume there's some sinful there but it was I don't know how much of it was holy advocacy versus like sinful destruction. Uh, but I think about like this don't come between a mama bear and her cubs dynamic. And I think like the one time in my life I've had to go like full big brother on a situation and I do it imperfectly and ineffectively and haphazardly and even with good intentions I'm not. But I think about having an advocate like that but more aggressive but perfect in execution per, like absolute passion love that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord like to have that motivated of an advocate like what would it feel like what would it be like to have someone have your back that much to not have to prove yourself or advocate for yourself or give voice to yourself but to have and I'm just telling you we all 
have that in Jesus. And as dumb as you'd be to get in between a mama bear and her cubs, you'd be even dumber to get in between big brother Jesus and his little siblings. And the same passion, the same fury, the same fire, the same desire, the same regard for well-being, the same love, the same absolute unrelenting pursuit, do not separate, we all have that in Christ Jesus. And he is at present interceding for us to the Father, empowering us by his spirit, and nothing can keep us separate. You will never actually be alone. You will never actually be left to fight your own battles. You will never actually be left to conquer temptation on your own. On your own. You'll never actually be left to your own devices. Because there's a fury that comes with love and God has it for you and me. Let me pray. Jesus, have mercy on us. I pray that we would experience and sense the fact that you are overcoming our enemies, our sin, our temptation. God, help us trust that you are writing a story better than we can even comprehend. We got in the midst of not understanding, I pray that we can trust you to be our advocate, to stay connected, to pursue and to love. In your name we pray, amen.